Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host Tony, and today we're going to look at Box Adventure, a side-scrolling platform game developed by Red Company and Atlas, and published by Hudson Soft and NEC, released in 1989 for the PC Engine, otherwise known as the TurboGrafx-16, here in the United States. We're going to be talking about Box Adventure in just a minute, but first, as is customary, we're going to do just a little bit of housekeeping. This is episode number 27. I am excited to be here. I hope you all are as well. If you'd like to get in touch with me, send me advice, feedback, comments, suggestions for future episodes, or talk about classic gaming or technology in general, I would love to hear from you. And there are a couple ways you can reach out. I do have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com, and I also have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt. So if you want to reach out, drop me a note, feel free. I am definitely interested in hearing what you all think. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I do just want to take one minute to talk about the anatomy of an episode because, for the most part, every single one of our episodes follows a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, its historical context, how it was made, why it was made, and then we dive in and do a pseudo-review. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a numerical ranking or quantitative analysis, but we do talk about every game from several different perspectives. We talk about the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? What are the sound effects like? The narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and the overall feel. What does the game feel like to play today versus when it was released 20, 30, or maybe even 40 years ago? And we do all of that to determine whether a game is still holds up, whether the game still holds up today. And to do that, we assign every game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list, the top of the top, the best of the best, we have the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game enters the Pantheon, that means you know it is a darn good experience. It remains a stellar experience, even today. It has not aged at all. It just is something that everybody should experience at least once in their lifetime. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are the games that are still amazing and awesome experiences, especially if you have nostalgia for the game or you enjoy the genre. Absolutely play it. You should. Still highly recommended from my perspective. Things that you should experience. Not quite Pantheon level, but still really good games. Just beyond the Golden Oldies, we get into our Mediocre Mentions, and these are the games where we start talking about experiences that... I can't fully recommend to everybody to play. Certainly, if you liked the game in the past or if you love the genre in which it resides, go for it. You may have a good time, but I cannot recommend these games to the majority of the population. Either they've aged somewhat from when they were originally released, or they may have had a couple of issues that were part of just its general package to begin with. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we get to the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anybody play these titles. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day, that being Bonk's Adventure. Thank you. 
Galaxy Adventure is a side-scrolling platform game developed by Red Company and Atlas and published by Hudson Soft and NEC for the TurboGrafx-16 back in 1989. Before we can talk about the game, before we can start talking deep about Bong's Adventure, we do need to take a step back and talk about the next generation of home video game consoles, at least next generation as it was in 1987. And at the time, there were a couple of main players in the console space. You had Nintendo with the Famicom, as it was known in Japan, and the Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES, pretty much everywhere else. You also had the Sega Master System, which was released by Sega, and that was their 8-bit system to compete with the NES. And you also had the Atari 7800. Of the three, the NES had by far the biggest market share. There's a reason why for an entire generation of parents, no matter what home console you had, all they said was that their kids were playing Nintendo. Because for many, Nintendo was home gaming. It was synonymous with the concept of video games in the home. Regardless of the market share, though, all modern home consoles of the time were based on 8-bit CPUs or central processing units. So let's take a moment to talk about console technology. There had been, and there in history, there have been a long period of time where bits were pretty much considered the de facto standard for determining whether a console was going to be good or not, or whether the console was going to be better than another console. So let's talk about what it really means to be an X-bit console, because for a long period of time, from the 80s into the 90s, there was this kind of bit wars going on between various console manufacturers, where you would see different console manufacturers come out and say, well, my system is a 16-bit system, so it's automatically better than any 8-bit system. Or you might hear others say, well, I'm going to make, I'm going to make a 32-bit console or a 64-bit console. And there was just this massive influx of using the term bit when we were talking about consoles back then, and every manufacturer got in on it. Every manufacturer was trying to tout their title as being the most technologically advanced, and the way they would do that or communicate that to the general population was through this concept of bits. So what does it mean to be an X-bit console, whatever that X value is? Well, all it means is the amount of data a given processor or chip can process at any point in time. From the perspective of a CPU, that means the amount of information that can flow between a processing state and memory. So not to get too far into the weeds, but to talk about how processors work and how consoles work. The way a game plays, when a game is playing, it reads data off of whatever the medium for the game is. So let's talk about from the 80s perspective, that's kind of a console or a uh, cartridge-based console rather. The game as it runs will read data and will store data into memory on the console itself or RAM, random access memory. And that memory is considered to be kind of volatile, meaning that the data there is not going to be maintained. It's not going to stay after you turn the console off. It's not like a hard drive today or a solid state drive today where you save something to it and the data is there tomorrow when you turn it back on. RAM is intended to be temporary storage that facilitates the transmission of data between the whatever the console game is or whatever the game is and the other aspects of the overall console or computer. So the way that the CPU works is it will pull data from memory. And there are other memory types beyond just RAM. There's cache, which is faster speed pseudo RAM kind of stuff. And that's really what talks to the CPU back and forth. But for the intents or, and purposes of this discussion, let's simplify it and say just 
all of that kind of memory we'll just refer to as memory. So as a game runs, data is loaded into memory. That memory is then accessed by the CPU or central processing unit. It pulls that memory or that data from the memory and does something to it. It does some sort of either mathematical calculation or transposition or it does something to the data and then it restores that data or sends it back into memory, whatever that changed state is. And then the rest of the different uh, components of the console will read that memory and the overall gameplay code will read whatever has been changed by the CPU. It'll do something else and it'll continue in a loop. Generally speaking, most gameplay is stored or most games run in a continuous loop until some exit function happens, whether that's turning off the console or exiting the game or quitting or whatever the case might be. So that's generally speaking the way that the internal technology of consoles or even computers for the most part work. So when we say that something is an 8-bit console, that means that 8 bits of data is able to be processed within that CPU at any point in time. It can pull 8 bits of data out of memory, it can do something to it, and then it will return whatever that changed value is. The higher the bit total, the more data that can be processed concurrently. So from that perspective, when we start talking about the fact that a system might be 16 bits or might have a 16-bit CPU versus an 8-bit CPU, you could see that technologically, yes, a 16-bit CPU is more advanced than an 8-bit CPU. That kind of makes sense. It can process more data at any point in time. But the story doesn't end there because bits are not just attributable to CPUs. Bits have also been used from the perspective of graphics. So for graphics hardware, if we're talking about an X-bit graphics system, we're talking about the amount of data flow at any point in time, as well as the number of colors that the graphics chip is capable of processing. And that is not a one-to-one -one kind of thing. So when we're talking about graphics, you might be, if you're on your computer, especially a vintage kind of computer where we didn't yet have full like 32-bit colors and everything else that's out there. Basically, you can pretty much replicate almost any color today on your monitors. Any machine, any computer is capable, at least from a display perspective, of displaying any number of colors for the most part. Back in the past, you would have much more limited palettes available. And some things like VGA, some standards like VGA, may have only used 256 colors. So when you were selecting the options, the graphical options on your computers back then, you would have certain selections. You could pick 16 colors, 256 colors, which 256 colors is effectively 8-bit, and then you would have 16-bit, 24-bit, 32-bit. So that was a representation of the number of colors that the graphics subsystem was capable of displaying at any point in time. And of course, your monitor or TV would have to support that as well. So just keep in mind that when we talk about bits from the console perspective, we're talking not just about the CPU, but also the graphics. There's two distinct things going on at play here. And for a long time in the 90s, consumers were sold just the pure concept that more bits equaled better consoles. It's kind of true, like we were just talking about. You might have more colors. The more bits you have from a graphics perspective, the more colors you can display. The more bits you have from a CPU perspective, the more data you can process at one time. So it is kind of true, but this was really a marketing play. And you could see, if you ever look at the commercials from back then, marketing really is what fueled the desire for more bits. It wasn't necessarily the technology per se. As 1987 rolled around, all of the major game companies were still focused on their current 8-bit systems, 
with some of them beginning to talk about what the next generation of home consoles could deliver. Even some game development companies were trying to get into the console hardware market. With Hudson Soft, who was the company that created Bomberman and Adventure Island, they actually began to try to sell Nintendo on several advanced graphics chips they were developing for use on a future system. Nintendo said, no, no thanks, we're good, so Hudson was left without having a partner for these new graphics chips they had developed. There was, however, another player in the Japanese home computer market that was desperately trying to break onto the console scene. That company was NEC, who had been in the electronics industry for almost 100 years at that point. Looking to expand beyond their computer market dominance, they began seeking a partnership with a company that would have more direct video game experience. So they had a lot of experience in the computer market, none in the console market. They wanted to get into that console space. And luckily for them, as they were searching for a partner, they were able to find Hudson Soft. And timing-wise, the timing coincided almost directly with Hudson Soft's failure to sell Nintendo on taking their graphics chips and embedding that into their new hardware. So Hudson and NEC began a partnership that would eventually result in the creation and release of the PC Engine in Japan in late 1987. The PC Engine was a little unique. It was a bit of a hybrid console when it came to processing power. Like the other consoles of the time, the PC Engine would utilize an 8-bit CPU, so that's the amount of data that the system can process at any point in time. But it would instead use a 16-bit graphics subsystem, which made it more graphically powerful than the NES, Sega Master System, and other pure 8-bit consoles. In fact, the PC Engine was originally designed as a direct competitor to the NES. It had graphical capabilities that were much greater than any of the 8-bit systems available at the time, and NEC and Hudson believed that that would lead them to get a greater market share of the overall video game space. And in fact, that is exactly what happened. Shortly after release, it actually overtook Nintendo to be the highest-selling console in the Japanese market. And as you might imagine, NEC had big plans for the console. In 1988, they began the task of bringing the PC Engine to North America. Believing that Americans wouldn't like the design aesthetics of the PC Engine, NEC worked to overhaul the console's look in preparation for its North American release. They also believed that the name PC Engine wouldn't appeal to American audiences, and in an effort to demonstrate that it was more advanced console than its rivals, they decided to rebrand the PC Engine as the TurboGrafx-16, which was an allusion to the fact that it had a 16-bit graphics processor, even though it did still have an 8-bit CPU. So as the TurboGrafx-16 was being redesigned for the American market, a new feature was being added to Japan's PC Engine Monthly, which was a print magazine very similar to Nintendo Power, if anybody's familiar with that. Nintendo Power was pretty pervasive in the Nintendo realm. PC Engine, or NEC, had a similar monthly magazine called PC Engine Monthly. And in that magazine, there was a new comic strip that had just been introduced, featuring a character named PC Genjin, which was a play on words meant to sound like PC Engine, but instead referring to a prehistoric caveman who would use his head, literally, to solve any problems or overcome obstacles in his way. That comic strip would become an instantaneous hit. If we fast forward to 1989, we will find NEC finally ready to release the TurboGrafx-16 in North America. The only problem, though, is that they didn't have a well-known launch title that would be recognizable to North American consumers. 
And let's talk a little bit about launch titles, because they're fairly important in the history of video games in particular. A lot of times when a console would release, and even for a short time thereafter, there were not a ton of games available for the home market. There weren't a ton of games available for these consoles. When you would have a console release, you might have as little as two or three games that would release concurrently with the actual console. You'd have to wait for a period of time before you'd get new games. Nowadays, with all of the modern consoles, especially because now we have a lot of backwards compatibility, especially with the Xbox and the PlayStation ecosystem and switch with some of their retro titles from a Nintendo perspective, we have a ton of games available to us right away when we buy a new console. We, If we don't have a new one designed for the new console, we can always just download or use one of our old discs from another one, and it'll just play because of that backwards compatibility. Back in the 80s and 90s, this was not the case. There, were, there was absolutely a need for having these launch titles because for a long time that would be all you would have and you'd only have a handful of games to select from. So the video game releases back then were pretty sparse and when a console manufacturer would release a new console, they really wanted to focus on delivering titles around that time that could be experienced for a long time because there just weren't that many releases back then when consoles would first come out. So most consoles up through the early to mid 90s, beyond having a launch title or a set of launch titles, would also come with a pack-in title. So this is something, by the way, that I desperately miss. I used to love buying a game or buying a system and getting home and actually having a game be included with the console. So for the NES, just as an example, that was Super Mario Brothers, who was, of course, their incredibly well-known mascot, and he starred in an incredibly well-designed game that kind of kick-started the whole NES craze in North America. For the Sega Genesis, which around 1989 had just launched in North America, there was Altered Beast. Now, that wasn't a game that was native to the Sega Genesis, but it was a port of an incredibly popular arcade title that many gamers would recognize. If you spent any time in the arcades around that time, you would have recognized Altered Beast, and the fact that you were able to enjoy it in your home in 16-bit color glory was awesome. For the TurboGrafx-16, as NEC was trying to figure out the pack-in game for that system, there was Keith Carriage in Alpha Zones which was a Hudson title that pretty much nobody outside of Japan had any awareness of. So you might be able to guess what happened here. The TurboGrafx-16 did not sell well upon releasing North America. There just was no recognition. There was no recognition of the pack-in game or the launch titles. They just didn't resonate with the North American audience. So Nintendo still had a good chunk of the market. And as far as launches went, Sega Genesis, uh, when they released, or when Sega released the Genesis console, which had both a 16-bit CPU and 16-bit graphics, as well as a very recognizable pack-in game, NEC was just beaten pretty soundly from a launch perspective. And it was pretty obvious that NEC needed to do something to help improve the popularity of the console and to actually sell or gain some of the market share and actually sell their product. They needed a game that would appeal to consumers around the world and would be able to act as a proper mascot for the console. Recalling the popularity of the PC Genjin comic strip in Japan, it was decided that this character might just be what NEC needed to improve the console's place in the market. So Hudson Soft, Red Company, and Atlas began work to convert that comic strip into a game. And while it would be still called PC Genjin in Japan, in North America, it would get a bit of a catchier title, at least from my perspective. 
that title would become Bonk's Adventure. Now, NEC recognized that they needed to move fast. Any time spent wasted would result in even less market share. So they fast-tracked the development of the new game, directing the development team to complete the title in just three months. Around this time, Bonk started becoming a major part of the marketing for the TurboGrafx-16 console, so it was imperative that there was significant focus placed upon getting the game completed on time. They kind of didn't have a choice. (laughs) NEC had pivoted, and they were basically putting all of their eggs in Bonk's basket. So if Bonk was going to be delayed or there was going to be an issue with the development, they were going to be in a really difficult situation. Luckily, the team that was tasked with creating the game had done prior work creating platform titles in other systems, like Adventure Island, and they had a general understanding of platformers in the industry, such as Super Mario Bros. So the team began to create the gameplay mechanics and structure of Bonk's Adventure. Similar to Adventure Island, the game would be very colorful, with large, sprite-based graphics and characters absolutely dwarfing similar efforts that existed on the NES and similar systems. The size of the sprites on Bonk in comparison to, say, Super Mario Bros. is pretty dramatic how much bigger Bonk's graphics or Bonk's sprites were. This was really able to utilize the power of the system's 16-bit graphics processor, so there were more varied colors that were able to be displayed on screen than ever before. The visuals just in general, were incredibly impressive for the time. As far as gameplay mechanics go, rather than just jumping and running through levels, Bonk would have the ability to headbutt pretty much anything, including projectiles that would be fired at him. He'd similarly be able to perform a diving headbutt move to eliminate enemies with even greater speed, and could even spin repeatedly in mid-air and climb walls and ledges using his teeth. And this is one where, because the TurboGrafx-16 came with Turbo built into the controller, if you had a TurboGrafx-16 and Bonk's Adventure, if you jumped and you turned the Turbo button on on the jump, you would literally be able to spin in mid-air and navigate a level pretty easily, just effectively by floating. Beyond that, there was a progressive power-up system that was added to the game, as were secret levels, hidden rooms with extra lives and health-restoring food, and other traditional platform gameplay mechanics. The character design was largely fantastical and cartoon-like, with the team even going so far as to create caricatures of several company executives for inclusion as enemies in the game, which I think is just awesome. I love when when development companies or gaming companies do a little bit of these kind of almost cheeky kind of things, including caricatures of, of executives or other team members in their titles. Adventure Island would be popular for uh, the actual main character in Adventure Island was based on a fairly famous uh, Japanese, I believe, game player. I'm not sure if it was a developer or not, but his claim to fame was being able to hit the buttons on the controller faster than almost any human alive. Uh, There's probably more to that story. I know there's more to that story because I looked at it before, but I don't recall all the specifics off the top of my head. So if that sounds interesting to you, go, go ahead and look it up, or maybe we'll talk about it in a future episode. The game world, going back to Bonk, the game world would eventually be mapped out with a multitude of different environments across five distinct worlds, each of which had a different boss with specific attack patterns that would need to be reacted to in order to be successful. This would all culminate in one final boss gauntlet, after which you'd have the opportunity to tackle the main boss of the game. Now somehow, and I, this is one of those things where back then development was just different, Somehow, the team managed to complete the game in the prescribed three-month development window, 
and that resulted in Bonk's Adventure being released to consumers in North America in 1990, with a Japanese release that actually occurred a few months earlier back in December of 1989. NEC was banking on this game being popular, and luckily for them, the game became an almost instant hit, with many critics praising the game's cartoon-like graphics and inventive level design. Some media outlets had even included Box Adventure on their top games of all time list, with other publications rating it as one of the best games to play upon its release. Gamers also became enamored with the title, as it would quickly become the highest-selling TurboGrafx-16 game of the time. It seemed like NEC had finally found their mascot. However, Hudson didn't fully see it like that, They would actually enter into agreements for the game to be ported to several other platforms, like the NES, Game Boy, and Amiga computer system. While it's not the first time that a prized mascot would appear in a system not owned by their parent company, it certainly didn't help with maintaining exclusivity for the TurboGrafx-16. And in this particular instance, exclusivity for the TurboGrafx-16 would have been very important because it was kind of behind in the market to begin with. So the fact that Bonk was available on other systems didn't really do all that many favors for NEC and what they were trying to do and how they were trying to capture more of the market. It was a little bit of a dilution. It diluted its uh, significance as it related to the TurboGrafx-16. That being said, the TurboGrafx-16 version was still superior to other home consoles. The Amiga... Some may argue that the Amiga's graphics were a bit better than the TurboGrafx-16 version. I think that's personally a little bit of a matter of taste. Anyway, unfortunately for NEC, and despite Bonk's popularity, the TurboGrafx-16 system would never really catch on in America, and it underwhelmed so much that plans to release the console in Europe were scrapped entirely. The system would remain in the market for several years, and several Bonk sequels would be developed for the console, but it never truly gained a competitive foothold, especially after the release of the Sega Genesis and Super Nintendo systems, Super Nintendo coming a little bit after the Sega Genesis. While NEC and the TurboGrafx-16 system would eventually fail, Bonk himself does have a lasting legacy. Beyond the original title and two sequels developed for the TurboGrafx-16, he'd appear again in a 3D remake released in 2003 by Hudson Soft as a Japan exclusive for the PlayStation 2 and GameCube systems. It would subsequently be re-released on both the Wii and Wii U Virtual Consoles, becoming one of the highest-selling Virtual Console titles for the platforms, and would even make its way to the TurboGrafx-16 Mini Console that was released in 2020. And I do have the TurboGrafx-16 Mini Console, which is kind of an awesome piece of hardware, by the way. It's not very powerful, but the nostalgia that comes with that, and the fact that it was such a limited run especially from a North American perspective, where the TurboGrafx-16 never really caught on when it was released. It's kind of cool to have that, and it's it's cool to have Bonk in that in that format. I do actually have an original TurboGrafx-16 as well with Bonk's Adventure. I had never really played it so much back in the day. I was still very much a Nintendo kind of guy back then, but I enjoyed the fact that I had it, and I did play it from time to time. And that's... That was just the way it was with the TurboGrafx-16. Back when it was released, it was more of a curiosity almost. And it remains a bit of a curiosity in classic gaming, as opposed to a true console juggernaut. But regardless of that, and despite that fact, Bonk, as he became the eventual mascot for the system, has found a place in the hearts of gamers everywhere. Who couldn't love a caveman who solves all of life's issues with a swift headbutt? 
Bonk's creators would eventually leave the video game market entirely, leaving us all to wonder if we'll ever see a new adventure in the whimsical prehistoric series. Whether we do or not, the fact remains that the original Bonk's adventure, while perhaps not as popular as other mascot-driven titles like Super Mario Bros. or Sonic the Hedgehog, is still a game that should not be forgotten. now going to transition to talking about what it feels like to play Bonk today versus when it was released back in the early 90s, late 80s kind of time frame. So Bonk, just to refresh everybody's memory, is a side-scrolling platform game. So let's talk about its general gameplay. It is very similar to other side-scrolling platformers that you might have experience with, like Super Mario Brothers or Sonic the Hedgehog. So the way you would work, or the way the game would work, is you would enter into a series of levels. And each level, you would have to progress from side to side, and in some cases, vertically, to get to the eventual goal. And along the way, as you would progress through those levels, you would encounter various enemies and obstacles and traps in the eventual uh, sequence of trying to get to the final boss of each of the worlds. So all levels were collected into a series of worlds in bonk there were five total worlds each of which had a boss and then you'd eventually get to one final big bad boss at the end now interestingly here and this was a bit of a a deviation from traditional platform style gameplay each individual world would not necessarily have the same number of levels and when you think about a platformer typically if i think about super mario brothers i very immediately think okay the original super mario brothers had Eight worlds, four levels in each world, 32 total levels, effectively. Similar kinds of concepts existed for other platform titles. There was generally expected to be a degree of consistency as you progressed through a game. With Bonk's Adventure, you didn't really get much of that. There would be five worlds, and each world would have a collection of levels, but the number of levels in each of the worlds varied dramatically. And I don't know why exactly that was, but that was the way they designed the game. Each of the worlds could have between one and eight individual levels embedded within its overall world. There was literally one world, I believe it was World 4, where just one level represented the entire world. And there were other worlds, like I believe World 2, that had around eight stages in it that you had to progress through. Now, as you would progress through the game... Unlike some other platformers, you would have a full HP kind of system. And in this game, you would get three hearts and three lives. Now, the hearts didn't just represent a single hit from an enemy. The hearts could be partially depleted if you were hit by less dangerous enemies or various sorts of obstacles or dangers that might be in the world. Some attacks were much more damaging than others. And especially some of the boss attacks that you'd eventually get to were incredibly damaging. So a little bit of a different spin on the classic platform formula where you could actually get hit a few times and not have it be that big of a deal. And you could replenish your hit points pretty easily throughout the game. There were a good amount of opportunities to increase your your hearts. So from that perspective, it actually was kind of a streamlined experience, a little bit of a easier kind of experience, a little bit more of a friendly experience, I would say. So Jeff, definitely a little different than what other platform games were going for at the time. 
Now, like I said, you have three lives when you start the game. And once you lose all of those lives, you can actually continue indefinitely. But you have to return to your prior checkpoint. And the way that the checkpoints worked is most of the time they were at the very beginning of a world. So let's say you're in world one, which is the very first world in the game. Let's say you get all the way up to the boss and for some reason you die to the boss. You'll have to repeat the entirety of world one in order to get back to the boss. Some of the longer worlds, like in World 2, you didn't have to go all the way back to the beginning, which I thought was a really nice touch for the development team to add that. World 2 had eight stages in it. So if you died in World 2, but you were on, say, stage 2-6, it would bop you back to level 2.4 when you would go to continue. So internal to the game, and as they developed the game, they did develop a sort of checkpoint system, at least as it related to Worlds and the number of levels and where you would be able to restart if you failed or if you lost all of your lives. There was no indicator included in the game as to when a checkpoint would happen. It's not like there was a a flash on the screen or a flag or anything like that. You just had to be lucky that you would have gotten far enough in a given world before you would have to restart the entire thing or start from a checkpoint. And I will say that that actually happened to me when I was playing through the game and I was in World 2, I got up to, I think it was World 2-7 or something like that, and I ended up losing all my lives. Um, And we'll talk about the controls and and the difficulty in a little bit, but I got up to around World 2-7, I lost all my lives, and I'm thinking, oh great, I've got to go all the way back and redo the entirety of World 2, this is going to be just a little cumbersome, a little tedious, and I went to hit continue, and I started right on World 2-4, and I thought, oh, you know, that's actually nice, that's a, a nice feature, it's a little bit of a of a softer feature in that even though these games back then were still much more difficult than many games that exist today, this was a little bit of a, of a comfort. It was a little bit of a a section or in addition for usability and making the game player feel a little bit less burdened by having to restart all the way from the beginning. So I enjoyed that as you would move through levels there'd be a bunch of food that would be spread throughout the levels. If you eat the food, which you want to do for the most part, it will replenish your health. And there's a ton of food that's around there. So you never really have too much of an issue from an overall hit point perspective, as long as you're not taking excessive damage from some of the attacks that do a ton of damage. Uh, There are also small hearts that are uh, peppered throughout the various levels. If you pick up one of the hearts, it will actually replenish a full single heart on your life gauge. So those are definitely valuable and you want to be able to seek those out wherever you can. And then even more rare are big hearts and the big hearts are kind of these gigantic spinning heart looking things. And if you pick that up, then that will replenish all of your life. And the cool thing there is that it will replenish all of your hearts no matter how many hearts you have because there's actually a way in the game to increase your total HP gauge, similar to what you might see in a game like The Legend of Zelda, where you might start with three hearts, but over the course of the game, you can acquire more heart containers and thereby increase your total life pool. In Bonk, those, the life doesn't necessarily persist across uh, continues, so if you end up losing all of your lives, even with excessive hearts, you will go back to the three heart minimum when you or yeah, the three heart minimum when you go back to continue in a given level. But if you find these kind of gray bluish hearts throughout the game, that will allow you to add an extra heart container, which will give you additional hit points in your overall life gauge. And actually, now that I think about it, the 
the bluish grayish heart container actually reminds me if anybody's played the binding of Isaac with the, um, the bluer hearts that will effectively do the same thing, increase your overall life gauge, totally random thought that just popped into my head. But it, I wonder if that was an inspiration for, uh, Isaac anyway, as you move through the world, you can also collect smiley faces and those will help you refill your health depending on how well you do in the world and how many you collect by the time you beat the world. So the smiley faces are basically just a bank that isn't really used for anything until you beat a given world's boss. And then once you beat the world's boss, the smiley faces will count down, the game will give you some points, and as it's counting the smiley faces down, it will replenish your hit point gauge by a little bit for every smiley face that you collect. So it is worth it to collect smiley faces as much as possible, because when you go into the next world, when you transition from world two to world three, as an example, after you beat world two's boss, your hit points are not automatically given back to you. You will continue the game with however many hit points you had left, which can be dangerous in some situations. And you really want to be able to conserve your hit points and conserve your your lives as you move throughout the game. Beyond the traditional food that you can eat throughout the levels to regain your hit points, there are also chunks of meat that act as power-ups, and with each piece you become more powerful. So there are two different kinds of meat. There are small chunks of meat and there are large chunks of meat. For the small chunks of meat, if you eat one of them, your damage and defense will go up and you will actually change into a little bit of a different color to demonstrate that you are in fact powered up. If you eat two small chunks of meat or eat an extra small chunk of meat while you're still powered up from the first one that you ate, you'll become invincible for a short time and then you'll kind of flash a rainbowish kind of color and you'll be able to basically just tear through the level and uh, enemies and whatever else that might be in your way. At the same time, there are large chunks of meat that are around in different levels or that different enemies may be holding. And if you ho- if you eat one of those large chunks of meat, you'll also become invisible for a short time. So basically, one chunk or one large chunk of meat is the equivalent of two small chunks of meat. It's just you get it all at one all in one fell swoop. Most of the time, those large chunks of meat are actually held by oddly colored enemies in the game world. So if you're going across a level and you see a bunch of see a bunch of normally colored blue enemies, let's just say, and in the middle of them is one red enemy, you could almost be guaranteed that that red enemy is holding a large chunk of meat. So you might want to prioritize defeating that enemy to pick up that large chunk of meat, become invincible, and then be able to take out all of the other enemies that might be surrounding you. Also in the game are flowers that you can bounce on that do different things. There are different colored flowers. There are yellow colored flowers, and if you jump on that, those are basically like your trampoline kind of function. You can jump on it and allow you to jump higher in the level wherever you're going. There are also red flowers, which can contain food. Um, They also may contain hearts or be a trap, and that's one that I will say the game designers actually did a pretty good job of faking us out sometimes as, as we play the game, because there'll be certain sections, and, and it started to get a little telegraphed as you play the game. There'd be certain sections where there'd be three red flowers right in a row. And at that point, the way the game had been designed or the way the levels had been designed, for the most part, you're getting up to them and you may need some some hit points. And you think, oh, great, I've got three red flowers. That means three opportunities to get either food or heart containers that will allow me to replenish my hit points. So you jump on the first flower, you get some food and you're like, okay, this is going to be great. You jump on the second flower and suddenly it turns into this manic ghost yellowish kind of flower thing that chases you throughout the level until you kill it. And it's like, oh, come on. Did you really have to do that? Did you, did you have to fool me out or fake me out like that? Uh, 
So they did use that. And I will say, though, that is that's an interesting mechanic. I did enjoy, actually, surprisingly, the trap there. It kept me on my toes. And it was almost like a risk versus reward kind of thing where if I knew I needed hit points, I was like, I have to hit this flower. But I also knew that it may not give me the hit points that I'm looking for. And it may actually spawn an enemy that would be something that could take away more hit points. So that risk versus reward actually was an interesting mechanic. I don't know that they intended it fully to be as interesting as it was, but it did add a degree of uh, tension to each of the levels as you were going through there. Um, There were other flowers, by the way, that would reward a blue heart, that blue-gray heart we were talking about that gives you an extra heart container. So that's one of the primary ways that you would get one of those heart containers. Um, I don't know exactly how many the maximum heart containers would be if you would find it. I found maybe two or three during my playthrough. I don't know if there are others out there. I don't know what the maximum amount of hearts are. It'd be very interesting if anybody knew. So feel free to drop me a line if you do know that or if you want to talk about it. As you would continue to progress through the levels and accumulate points, you would, similar to other platform experiences, get extra lives at various point levels. So once you get your first 10,000 points, you get an extra life. Once you get your the 20,000 points, you get an extra life. And then every 20,000 thereafter, you'd be able to get an extra life. One of the things that I found interesting about the game as I was navigating the game world is that a lot of levels had a good amount of secrets hidden across their, their worlds. And there's a number of different ways that you could discover these secrets. Some of them might be discovered by jumping your head into blocks that might be above you, very similar to what you would see in a Super Mario Brothers title. Others, you might see some oddly colored uh, or textured walls in the world, and you could walk up through it and headbutt it, which will then eliminate that block and open up a doorway that you'll be able to go into a cave or something else that might have some power-ups, extra lives, food, things like that. The interesting thing, or the thing that everybody has to keep in mind, is that in this game, you use your head for everything. Do not be afraid to use your head whenever it seems like you may need to, because it literally is used for everything. It's used for defeating enemies. It's used for unlocking secrets. It's used for deflecting projectiles. Your head is your weapon in this game, and it does a pretty good job of it. So as as people probably have told you throughout your lives, use your head. It's uh, it's going to work in this particular instance. Anyway, before we get into the more specific elements of the game, I do want to read what the back of the box says, because as you all know, I love looking at how different companies and development groups and marketing, how they try to sell their games to the end user, the end consumer, because back then, back when we're talking about these timeframes with all of these classic games, or at least most of the classic games, You may not have had magazine articles readily available that you could go to and read reviews, or you may not have had the internet. Certainly when Bonk was released, we didn't have the internet to be able to go and look at a YouTube-like site to see gameplay videos or see what the game actually looked like in motion. So we would have to rely a lot of times on what the box showed. You might be walking around a video game store and you see a box that looks cool. That literally was the way that we bought a lot of our titles back then. So for Bonk's adventure, the back of the box says... Bonk's Adventure, 16-bit graphics adventure game. Bonk yourself out in this head-button, head-splitting adventure. As Bonk the Caveman, use your head against Kongozilla, Tractor Head, and the wackiest array of prehistoric foes ever seen. Be sure to eat your meat and vegetables as you power up to battle evil King Drool himself. It's a real headbanger. And then just a couple of uh, bullet points. There are number of players, one, number of levels, seven plus secret bonus screens, 
ages eight years to adult. And then, of course, they have some images on the back of the box. So that was how Bonk's Adventure was sold for the TurboGrafx-16 when it first came out. That was what the box looked like. So a little bit interesting. I would say that from my perspective, I don't know that it sells it super well. I think it could have been done a little bit better, but it's still not bad. Now we're going to talk about the individual aspects and elements of the game, and we're going to start by talking about the game's graphics. So as we talked about, TurboGrafx-16 provided a 16-bit graphics subsystem, which was ostensibly more detailed or had the opportunity for better details than what you would see in other 8-bit systems of the time, like the NES. And I've got to say, the graphics definitely feel like a step up from the NES. I... I played a ton of NES. NES was my my first home console when I was younger, and I played a ton of those games. Seeing Bonk's Adventure for the first time, I was a little blown away. I was like, wow, these graphics are amazing, and they still hold up today. They're very bright and nicely detailed environments. It felt very cartoon-like, and I know that a lot of people overuse that phrase, myself included. We always talk about how how these games looked almost like a cartoon. For Bonk, it was closer to a cartoon than anything we had up to that point, other than maybe like Dragon's Lair in the arcades. But from a home console perspective, this was pretty darn close, and it still looks really good today. All of the character designs are really nicely done. They are very large sprites. They're nice and chunky. And I hope everybody recognizes when I say that, I actually mean it as a compliment because the larger the sprites, the better the details oftentimes that you could include within the overall design. And in this instance, the characters looked great. The design of Bonk was really memorable and something that I remembered even from back when I was a kid and it's still as memorable today. Some of the bosses, by the way, are as big as the entire screen. These are gigantic characters, gigantic sprite work, and they all look awesome. All of the environments looked great, and there are varied environments. It's not like you're walking through just one simple level. As you progress throughout the game world, the environments change and shift, and you will see mountain valleys, underwater lakes, waterfalls, icy caves. You'll even go to the moon. All of the environments really look good. I really have no complaints here from a graphics perspective. I loved the way the game looked. Moving on to the sound and the music, the music here was surprisingly catchy, and I will admit that I don't have or I didn't have any recollection of the music from when I had played it as a child to right now. So when I was playing through the game just recently, the music felt new to me because I literally didn't remember any of it. But the music was pretty darn catchy. It was well done. I don't know that I would say it really holds up to the best of Nintendo's platformer catalog, which for the most part is pretty darn memorable, but I don't think it needs to. It's still a varied, fun-feeling soundtrack just by itself in its own right. Each of the tracks matches the environments nicely, and the general music, just from an overall perspective, seems very reminiscent of Hudson's Adventure Island, which, considering Hudson also worked on Bonk's Adventure, probably isn't particularly surprising. And I will say, now, I may not have remembered the music from Bonk's Adventure. I do remember the music from Adventure Island. That one is, is emblazoned in my brain forever. Maybe that's just because I played that game more than Bonk back in the day, but 
the music was still of a, of a relatively good quality, same kind of quality, and I enjoyed it. It sounded really good today. All of the sound effects, by comparison, were also good. I also, I really especially liked the crunchy noise that you hear when your head hits a boss's weak point. Overall, no complaints here. The sound is really good, and it sounds just as good today as what it did back then. Moving on to the narrative and story, it's pretty typical platform fare. You play as Bonk, who's a prehistoric caveman who has to save his friends, all of whom have been placed under some sort of mind control by the evil T-Rex King Drool. He's also kidnapped the Princess of Moonland, and as you might imagine, you have to go save your friends, rescue the princess, and defeat King Drool once and for all. We've talked about platformers before, and I've often said, you don't need a ton of story in a platformer because most of the platform gameplay or most of the platform's goal is focused on the gameplay. And with Bonk, it's no different. The story here works. It's pretty much the a backdrop for the main focus of the game, which is that gameplay. So from that context, I think that Bonk actually has the perfect amount of narrative and story for a platformer. It gives you that background. It paints that background perspective, but then it steps out of the way. It gives you an overall goal or an overall focus of what you're trying to do in your adventure, but then it just fades away and all you're left with is the game and the gameplay. And yes, there is that overall or overarching goal of trying to save your friends because of something bad that another character or another boss did, but that's all it does. It just gives you that overall direction. And I think it works. And I really appreciate the fact that there was a narrative included, but it didn't overstay its welcome or it didn't overstep its bounds. It was basically exactly what it needed to be for a platform-like experience. Moving on to the playability and controls, there's actually a lot to talk about here, so let's dive in. Generally speaking, as you move around the environment, you walk and jump around side-scrolling and vertically scrolling levels. And you do have a number of moves. It's a pretty varied moveset considering when the game was released. You can either headbutt from a standing position, so you could stand still and just headbutt continuously as, as monsters approach you or as you approach monsters. You can also jump in the air and do a flying headbutt, which you can chain together for continuous bounces on enemies, which I particularly enjoyed, by the way. So you can either jump up and slam your head down onto an enemy that's on the ground, and a lot of times that may kill the enemy you're fighting because the flying headbutt is an incredibly powerful move in comparison to some of the other moves that you have. If you miss though, and you land on the ground, you will become stunned for a couple seconds, at which point any enemy around you could pretty much uh, attack you and put a world of hurt on you. So you do have to be careful there. And it takes a little bit of getting used to, to figure out the right distance and the right, the right timing to do those flying headbutts. But then if you do attack an enemy that might be aerial or, or an enemy that has some additional hit points, you can actually juggle yourself on top of that enemy by continuously flying headbutting them, which I thought was a really interesting mechanic and I enjoyed. Uh, you can also jump in the air and do a continuous somersault, which allows you to sort of float in the sky as long as you keep somersaulting. And we mentioned earlier that if you have an actual TurboGrafx-16 controller and you have the turbo buttons there, you're able to turn the turbo on and just continuously spin in midair. And that will make some levels go ridiculously easy because you could effectively fly over a lot of the obstacles. I didn't personally do that because I, I wanted to experience the game 
as designed. And you might say, well, hey, NEC designed the TurboGrafx-16. They added the turbo button right there. They added that functionality to the game. So technically it is as designed if you want to use that. And I would say, yes, you're absolutely right. But I wanted to feel what the act of truly platforming in the game was so that I could compare it to other experiences that I had. So this is not about a trying to make the game more difficult kind of thing. It was just purely how I wanted to experience the game. So I didn't use any turbo as I was playing through the game. As you navigate the environments, you'll reach places where you can swim, climb up ledges, swing across vines, jump from platform to platform, and bounce on clouds. So the overall navigation of environments and the controls associated with that navigation are pretty varied as well. As far as climbing up on ledges, just for reference, it's not like the traditional I grab onto a ledge and climb up kind of thing. You will use your teeth. So you jump onto a ledge, you mash the button, and then you're able to climb up. And you can also use that to climb vertical walls that may be a little bit too high for you to jump up to the top of anyway. And that's actually used to great effect in one of the levels, which is purely a vertically scrolling level where you pretty much have to climb up walls and and dodge enemies or fight enemies and things like that. So it's used a pretty good effect throughout the game. And it was interesting. I thought it was a, a nice, interesting aspect of the character and certainly fit in line with the character that in order to climb, you actually use your teeth rather than your arms to climb up. So overall, the controls were varied and the game felt pretty good to play. I will say, though, there are some issues with the movement scheme in the game, especially in comparison to how I was used to playing platformers. The biggest issue, from my perspective, is that there is no run button. In Super Mario Brothers, you can hold down the B button to run around levels, which, believe it or not, some people actually don't use or don't know about, which boggles my mind a little bit. Whenever I played Mario, I always used the run to run through the levels. Maybe I'm a little bit reckless, but... I enjoy running through the levels. I think it just just makes it feel really good to do. But in Bonk, there is no way to run. All you can do is walk at whatever his typical normal speed is, which throws you off a little bit. It means that getting enough momentum to clear certain jumps or to reach far off platforms feels really odd in my head as I'm approaching these obstacles in the game. I feel like I need to get a running jump. So the way I would play it in a Mario Brothers game, I would back up a little bit enough to get a running a running uh, speed or got up to speed from a running perspective. And then I would jump as I would get close to the edge of the platform, which would enable me to clear that platform. In Bonk, you can't do that. So I would oftentimes find myself trying to do that. I'd back away from the gap or, or wherever I was and I would try to get a running jump. And then I'd remember, crap, I can't run. <laughs> so I there was really no need to do that. So it made it just feel disjointed from what you logically believe you should be doing. And I think part of that is just programming because and by programming in this context, I mean just our own psychological or muscle memory programming, because the way a lot of platformers operate, especially games like Mario Brothers, is you do need to use the B button to get a running start. And in Bonk, you can't really do that. The second issue I had with the overall controls is that as you're moving around, you have little to no inertia at all. And this is something that is a little bit tricky to get right. But the best platformers, like the Mario series, has just enough inertia to make it feel like you have momentum in your movement, which makes the game feel more natural to play. Trying to play a game without any inertia is a very odd feeling, and it does take quite a bit to get used to, especially when you combine that with the no-run situation here. It just feels odd to play. I, I don't have a better way of saying it. It just you're, it doesn't feel 
normal to me. You can get used to it, and you will get used to it if you play the game enough, but it is one of those things that is just, it's not, it doesn't feel natural to me. Getting the hang of the flying headbutt also, and it's targeting, and I mentioned this just a little bit ago, but it bears mentioning again, it does take some time to get that aim down and to get the right timing down for when you'll actually do your flying headbutt move. Once you do figure it out, though, and once you do get a better rhythm for when to use it and how to use it, it becomes a very powerful move. It's actually the highest damaging attack that Bonk has. So you want to use that whenever you can or whenever it makes sense. And in certain areas, because like we were talking about before, you can bounce up and down by using repeated headbutt moves. That is especially useful when you go and fight the bosses. And some of the bosses are pretty, pretty darn easy. The first boss in particular is very easy. And if you do this flying headbutt juggle move that I've been talking about, you can basically just jump on top of his head, just juggle yourself continuously for five-ish hits or however many hits it is, and then defeat him and he's done and you move on to the rest of the game. So it is a very useful move to learn and to get better at. Overall, from a playability perspective, it could be better. I mean, it's not bad. They're not horrible, but they're also not great. It does, you do get used to them, and it does become more natural as the game goes on, especially as you near the end game where you've already played the game for a pretty good amount of time. You feel pretty much more comfortable with the controls, but I don't know that I would go out of my way to replicate the Bonk-style controls for other games. I would probably use some other well-known platformers as my framework or as my foundation for the control scheme. So overall, how did it feel to play the game? What was the overall feel of playing the entire experience? I've got to say that for most of the game, I had a slight grin on my face. Other than the control and motion quirks that we talked about before, the game feels pretty darn good to play, and it is enjoyable. It's not overly difficult, and it's not overly easy. It is pretty much spot on for a simple cartoon-like platformer. This is something where... If you just want to have some fun and pop in a game for, for a little bit, a half hour, hour, whatever, you can do that and you can have some fun. Though there is one section near the end of the game that we need to talk about more specifically, and that is the lead up to the final boss of the game, which becomes a boss gauntlet kind of hallway. You need to beat each of the four bosses that you had previously fought and then also fight the main boss of World 5 and then also fight the final boss of the game, all with one set of three lives, assuming you haven't collected additional lives along the way or additional heart containers. So, and if you die, by the way, during this boss gauntlet and or during the main boss, the final boss fight, you will continue right at the beginning of the boss gauntlet. So it's not like you have to redo much of the world if you die at this point, which is a godsend, because I died quite a bit trying to figure out how to beat everything and be able to actually survive the entire experience. Um, but that means that you're going to start with your base three lives and your base three hearts. So any of the additional hearts that you may have found along the way in your adventure have gone away if you die there. So to talk about the individual bosses, because we haven't talked about the bosses other than the one in World 1, some of them are pretty easy, but there are a couple that aren't. So the first boss in the game is this big dinosaur-like creature, and you can literally just bounce on his head without any sort of danger to you. It's a very simple boss. It's meant to introduce you to the game, and it does a really good job of doing that. 
The second boss is also similarly easy, which is a creature that will split itself in two, will create an illusion of itself, and you have to figure out which one is the right one in order to bounce on their head, and then eventually the illusion goes away and you have to beat the remaining real boss while it gains a couple of additional moves. Overall, not a bad fight. Not not too difficult of a fight. The third boss that you fight is a monkey boss where you just logically you will want to just keep bouncing on his head to speed the fight up because that's his weak point and you just feel well maybe I'll just juggle his head the way I did the big dinosaur from World 1. You don't want to do that with the monkey boss. The monkey boss is much smaller and the window of opportunity for hitting his head is much narrower. So the other thing you have to pay attention to is it's not like there isn't danger there. When he raises his arms above his head, there's some wonky collision detection. And even if you think you're pretty much lined up spot on with his head, you may get hit with, honestly, you may get hit with like his fingernail or something. I don't know how I got hit in some of the instances I did. But when he raises his, his arms above his head, you will get hit. And if you do get hit, that is going to take off a good chunk of your life. And it's also going to make it that much more difficult to get back in position because he also tosses some boulders your way as the or blocks as the game or as the fight progresses. So you do not want to take any chances with that boss. And he was responsible for a lot of my deaths before I figured out exactly how I wanted to tackle him. When I was playing it in the in the regular game like as actually in world three versus this boss gauntlet at the end of the game, I didn't have too much difficulty because even if I had lost a life or even if I had lost some hit points, if I beat him, I was going to get onto the next world that would unlock the new checkpoint. So I didn't really care doing this boss rush or this boss gauntlet. You have to conserve as much as you can in order to be successful later on the main boss. So you want to be a lot more careful here and, to, to figure out the best way to beat him carefully was a little bit of a challenge. Beyond him, you also fight a boxing boss. He isn't too bad. Once again, his weak spot is on his head, and he's, he's kind of big, similar to the World 1 boss, but you don't want to let him hit you with a lunging punch. The lunging punch will take away nearly all of your hearts, which is just horrible. It's got to be the most damaging attack that an enemy has in the entire game. I, I just, when I got hit with that, I just was like, what just happened? I thought the game glitched for a second because no other enemy has an attack like that. But then I realized that, oh, that's I guess that's just one of his special attacks. So you have to be much more careful when you're attacking him. So then you finally get past that boxing boss and then you go up to the world five boss, which is kind of this tank that you have to bounce a few times. Well, more than a few times, but you've got to bounce on an antenna. That's not too bad. You just have to figure out the timing of that one. And assuming that you beat that, that then effectively frees the princess. So you have freed the princess at that point, but you have not beaten the game. The final boss is up on the moon and you've got to take a rocket ship. You go up to the moon and that plays via a sort of cutscene kind of moment. And then you land on the moon and then you approach the final boss. And the final boss of the game has two phases, one of which he's kind of translucent, transparent, he's more ghost-like, and then the next phase, he is a solid dinosaur, and a gigantic dinosaur. Once again, these are really big character sprites or, or combinations of sprites, very detailed. The thing is, with this final boss, I was never able to figure out a way to hit him without taking damage. That might be through a fault of my own. 
but I never found his weak spot. I don't know that he has a weak point. All of the enemies or all of the bosses up to this point had a pretty easily telegraphed weak point where, and it, I believe all of them, yeah, all of them were on their head other than the antenna on the tank boss before you get to the main boss of the game. So you were pretty able to, or pretty easily able to see where the weak points were on most of the bosses. For the final boss, I could not find a weak point. And every time I tried to hit him, I would take some degree of damage. And I don't know, I might have missed something. If I did miss something and you guys know about about a way to attack him without actually taking damage, let me know. But if not, if there isn't really a place where you can attack him without getting hurt, I truly believe that's an issue with the game's design. I don't think there should ever be a requirement to trade hits with a boss, unless it's part of the overall core mechanics. This did not feel like part of the core mechanics in that the boss didn't seem like he was designed to have a back and forth kind of battle. It just seemed like either through odd hit detection or just the way the game was designed, it was always going to hurt you. So I think there's a little bit of a design issue there. Of course, like I said, I might be missing something. So if so, let me know. That being said, other than the final boss rush, I was pretty content with the game overall. It's the kind of game you play when you want a lighthearted romp through a colorful world. Other than that final set of boss fights, which are dramatically more difficult to get through successfully, the rest of the game, I, I enjoyed quite a bit. So, what is our verdict? How well did the game hold up today? Where does it sit in our overall hierarchy? Well, considering the short length of its development, this is a surprisingly competent platformer. It never reaches the heights, though, of the best of the genre, but it still holds its own, and it is still very playable today, albeit with some frustrations and irritating design decisions. Still, I do believe it deserves a playthrough, and for that reason, Bonk's Adventure is one of our golden oldies. I don't think everyone's going to love it, but I bet most will appreciate what the development team set out to do. Plus, as a representative as one of the first 16-bit graphics platformers, it still looks really good today. It's not that long of a game, other than the very difficult final section, which you'll have to most likely replay multiple times, but that's actually not a bad thing. It's the perfect game for a laid-back afternoon gaming session. If you've never experienced it before, you should give it a go at least once in your life. Mario and Sonic it isn't. What it is, though, is one of our golden oldies. was our episode on Bonk's Adventure. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing or give feedback, advice, suggestions, or comments about prior episodes or recommendations for future episodes. I'd love to hear from you. And there are a couple ways you can reach out. I do have a Twitter account with the handle at Classic Gaming I also have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. So if you feel so inclined, feel free to reach out. I'd love to have the discussion. Before we sign off for the week, I want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on Super Mario Land 2. So we did play Super Mario Land a few episodes ago, around a month-ish ago or so, and I thought, why don't we revisit and take a look at its sequel, Super Mario Land 2, because it is quite a bit different than the original game. So if anybody has any particularly fond or not-so-fond memories of the experience, feel free to write in and let me know. At the same time, I recognize you're likely listening to this on any number 
or of uh, podcast engines or podcast searches. So if you feel so inclined, I would love it if you could leave us a review. I'm not trying to bolster star counts and I'm not trying to harvest a ton of five star reviews. Although if that happens, awesome. That means that we're doing something right. What I am interested in, though, is understanding and getting feedback so that we can deliver the best possible podcast that this can be. I want to make sure that the content that I'm creating, that the way I'm delivering the content aligns with what you all expect when you listen to a quality podcast. So in that interest, I would love it if you could leave some feedback or if you just want to shoot me a note about some feedback, I'm totally fine with that too. I just want to really make this the best possible podcast it can be. We are continuously growing, continuously developing the community. We get new listeners literally every day, which is awesome. Welcome everybody who may be new and thank you all for anybody who has been with us for a while. So I just want to make sure we continue to deliver the content that everybody wants to hear. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Super Mario Land 2. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone.